All right, we're going to we'll take some time here tonight and uh, I'm going to I'm going to actually reiterate a couple things that I went over on uh, last last time in Sunday school. Uh, so hopefully I don't seem too redundant in what I'm what I'm trying to bring out, but there's a lot in this one verse uh, here in verse number 13. Um when it talks about uh, he made him to be sin here, or uh, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. And so I know that I, I went over some of, uh, some of that um, more of a practical, uh, more of the practical side of it. I want to run some verses so that you guys can maybe uh, reference these through your Bible or map these out in your Bible like I've shown you how to do. Um, and then again, if you have any questions on this, um, feel free to ask some questions. Um, <coughs> let's see here. We're again starting verse number 13. Verse number 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Now we went... I won't go, what I won't go through again is this curse of the law. We went through that with Deuteronomy uh, 27, talking about um, uh, the nation of Israel when they went into the land, how they got up on top of uh, one mountain, one top of the other, and they're, one mountain they're going to proclaim blessing, and the other mountain they're going to pro proclaim cursing. And the horrible uh, curses that came throughout the Old Testament there, if they refused to uh, heed what God had told them to do, so the curse of the law is evident there in Deuteronomy chapter 28, one of the, the most horrible passages in all of the Bible when it comes to the disciplinary actions of the Lord towards the nation of Israel. But it says, being made a curse for us. Okay? Being made a curse for us. So I want to actually run a couple of verses here. I, 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 like I said, I will be a little bit redundant on this, but it's, it bears going through the verses so that you have them in your notes. Okay, uh, go to start with uh, Matthew chapter number 27 on this thought of being made a curse for us. Matthew 27. Matthew chapter 27. His, the, Lord, the Lord forsook Jesus Christ. God the Father, He forsook the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. This is one of the sayings on the cross. Um, in verse uh, chapter 27, verse 46, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. This is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so to be totally forsaken from the Lord. Um, obviously a very dark uh, thing, but the reason that the Lord had forsaken the Lord Jesus Christ is because of what was happening to the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, okay? And so uh, to, get, to get the full understanding of what's going on there, go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, in verse number 14. And this is where we. This is this is how we connect. I, I told you the. I told you the illustration uh, back in Numbers twenty one, 
This is the connection. This is the connection point. Verse number 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You see that? And so this is what ties what's going on with Jesus Christ back to the illustration that's given in Numbers 21 with Moses. And just for the sake of going through the passage, go back to Numbers 21 real quick. Numbers chapter 21. And again, this is the kind of stuff that I really enjoy about the Bible because when you get, in, when you get into the Bible and you realize that he tells you to read the Old Testament because the things that were written aforetime were written for your admonition. They were written for your learning. And so I was talking to a gentleman the other day, and, and we, were, I, we were going along some of these you know, dispensational lines and that kind of thing and, and talking about New Testament salvation. We actually were talking about... He brought up Galatians chapter 3, and it just so happened I've been teaching Galatians chapter 3 for you know, a while now. And um, he talked about... Uh, you know, uh, if, if, if you're justified first by, the, you know, by faith, then are you made perfect by the works of the law? He had mentioned that over there in the first parts of Galatians chapter 3. And, and I kept referencing Old Testament passages that shed light on what he's talking about. And he's like, well, man, I, I, really, I really never read the Old Testament, right? And, and a lot of Christians don't read the Old Testament. A lot of Christians, you know, they, they, they like... You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they like the Pauline stuff, and don't get me wrong, I like it too. But if you really want to see the magnificence of the Word of God, you really want to solidify your faith in the Word of God, you read the Old Testament through the New Testament lens, and what you see is you see these types that God put in place thousands and thousands of years ago that run all the way up through and show you a picture of where you're at in the church age right now, and you go, there's no possible way that anybody could have wrote that book and made it line up like that, right? Uh, I was listening to some, you know, Bible rejectors the other day. I don't know why I listen to that stuff. I guess maybe it's just, you know, just to educate myself on what the arguments they have against, you know, the, the Bible and that kind of thing and against Christianity as a whole, you know, and, and that's where I, I hear these guys talking about, you know, Christianity is a... Uh, was, was uh, made up on psychedelic mushrooms and, um, you know, basically that, uh, um, you know, obviously all the, the, the original stuff and these scholars say that, the, that there's no way that you can have that, the, the perfect word of God sitting in your lap and they, and they change these verses to try to make it fit their theology. And um, when I was talking to this gentleman, he was telling me he believed every same, all the same doctrine that I believed. Right? And he says, man, I believe once saved, always saved. I believe salvation by grace through faith. And, and he doesn't go to a Baptist church. He goes to some, you know, some Christian assembly, you know, place, you know, something like that up in Troy. Really super nice guy, right? He's about my age, and he got saved like five years ago, and, and he's been going to Bible studies and really interested in learning things. And so you could tell that even though... He's not in a King James Bible-believing Baptist church that, you know, he, he's, he's learning stuff. He's learning some of these fundamental doctrines, right? But then when I pressed him, you know, I pressed him on, on some, some issues in the Old Testament and this whole, you know, saved in the Old Testament, same as you're saved in the New Testament, looking forward to the cross, looking back at the cross, that kind of stuff. 
you know, I said, well, what do you do with James when he says that you'll know that, that your faith without works is dead and I'll show you my faith by my works. And I said, you just quoted Galatians chapter 3 in that, you know, if your faith came or if uh, your, you know, your salvation came by the Spirit, is it made perfect by the law? And of course it's not. It's nonsense. But the problem is, is even people who believe the same doctrine as you, when they don't believe the Bible like you believe, what happens is, is they come to a crossroads and their doctrine doesn't match the Bible. You see what I'm saying? So somebody who says, once saved, always saved, you and me can say, hey, praise the Lord, brother, me too, right? But then when you get to the place in Scripture where the Bible, when, when David said, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, what do you do with that? You know, what do you do with Hebrews, Hebrews 6? You know, when it's impossible for those that were once in a way because they've, they've trodden the, the shed blood of Jesus Christ underfoot, it's impossible for them to be, uh, you know, to come back, right? It's impossible for them to be reconciled. What do you do with that? What do you do with James? When it's clearly a faith and work setup, what do you do with it? And so what they do, even though they believe like you believe, they have to change the Bible or interpret it shallowly. I said, what do you do with Matthew 22? What do you do with Matthew 22 when it says, it says uh, there's going to be people who say, Lord, Lord, and they prophesied in thy name, they've done great works in thy name, and he says, they're going to come to Jesus Christ. You say, depart from me, you curse it. I never knew you. I said, what do you do with that? And he's like, man, that verse has always bothered me. I said, well, what do you think? Well, he says, I was always taught that that's like the Joel Olsteins and the Benny Hens and stuff like that. Anybody ever heard that explanation? Those are false prophets, right? That's what they are. It's a pretty shallow interpretation of the verse. How do you doctrinally apply that? And so folks that don't read the Old Testament, they, they, they skate by, they skate by with just simply believing certain doctrinal statements. But when somebody who knows more than them or somebody who is of a different denomination or somebody who's a Calvinist or somebody who's a post-millennialist or somebody like that, confronts these people on these issues, they have to change the Bible. So that's the difference. And this is why we read the Old Testament, because we see how the New Testament doesn't, it doesn't contradict the Old Testament, but it, it brings light to the Old Testament. And what the Lord has done, uh, and, and when he, even when, when the Lord's talking, when the Lord's talking to, uh, um, to the folks that are, that are around in his time, he says, he says, if you believe Moses, you believe in me because Moses wrote of me. Right? Moses wrote of me. How in the world did Moses write about Jesus Christ? Well, I believe that Moses wrote, you know, first five books of the Bible. Right? Believe that. We, uh, and so we're sitting here in Numbers. And we're in Numbers chapter number 21. I guess that was a long roundabout way of getting to Numbers 21. But we're in Numbers 21. And uh, let's see here. I think I lost my spot here. I'll get to my place and then we'll go from there. So Numbers, uh, numbers 21... Start in uh, verse 8. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, 
when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if, the ser- uh, if a serpent had bitten any man, then he beheld the serpent of brass, uh, uh, beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now, this is probably just coincidence, right? That, the, that in uh, Genesis chapter 3, that uh, the devil shows up as a serpent. Right? And when we talk about, uh, when we talk about the death that occurred in Genesis, right, we talk about um, how the sting of death, right? We talk about the sting of death, um, <clears throat> and uh, we talk about how, uh, how sin entered into the world and death by sin, therefore death passed upon all men, so all of sin. And so the type here and the picture here um, is that you have, you, have, uh, you have the serpent that comes in, he beguiles Eve, that's how sin enters into the world. And so in order uh, for that to be, the, the, the people in here in, in Numbers 21 have been bit by a serpent. And now that serpent representative of sin is hung on a cross and simply looking at that serpent is the remedy for the serpent's bite. You see that? And it, it's, like, it's like that's the anti-venom. <laughs> and so, so he raises a serpent up, and it's brazen. And when you, when you start you know, reading about the Lord Jesus Christ, and it talks about he has uh, feet of brass, Right? Um, you talk about uh, brass in the, in the Bible, you know, is a, is a type of judgment in the Bible. And they said, you know, you read that a lot of times in the Old Testament, you know, it says, you know, I'll make you like brass or, you know, like, like streets of brass or stuff like that. There's all kinds of different references. And it's a, it's a type of judgment in the Bible. And so all of these things are similitudes. Every detail is a similitude, every single one. And so when we see in Numbers uh, how, how the Lord Jesus Christ shows us that, um, that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man also be lifted up, showing us the type of the Lord Jesus Christ way back in the book of Numbers. So how could you, tell, how, how could you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Moses wrote of him. You know, Moses wrote about him. Um, let's go to, uh, let's see here, um, go to 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. We ended here last week uh, in Sunday school, but it's, it's worth looking at it again. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, last verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he, God, hath made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Okay, so the Lord Jesus Christ was made to be sin. The personification of sin. That is, the devil himself. Everything that epitomizes and personifies sin was placed onto the Lord Jesus Christ. The vilest of the vile. The most wicked of the wicked. The Lord made Jesus Christ that. And and the significance of that is followed up by the next statement in the verse, which is, Cursed is everyone 
that hangeth on a tree. Okay, the significance of that, and we'll run some verses on this. The significance of the Lord Jesus Christ being made the epitome of sin, and we see it uh, from, from, from Numbers all the way through to this passage here, in that, in that Jesus Christ is, is made to be sin, and he, is, and he is made the personification of sin. We see it typified with the serpent in the wilderness. And it just so happened, that it's a coincidence that, the, what is that, the symbol for the medicine or something like that is a, is a pole with a serpent on it? Medical industry, hospitals and all that stuff. That's just a coincidence. Right. <laughs> no, nothing to see here. No big deal. Right. But he says here, uh, he says, for uh, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Now, I did show you this. This refers back to Deuteronomy chapter 21. So go with me there, if you will. Deuteronomy 21. Let's see the significance of, of this uh, punishment. Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou, uh, excuse me, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day, for he that is hanged is accursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Okay, so this is, they're fulfilling an Old Testament commandment found in Deuteronomy chapter number 21. The problem is, Christ was not guilty of what they accused him of. If you look at the accusations or, or, the, or the charges, look back in verse 18 of Deuteronomy 21. If a man, uh, and I mentioned Obama making statements, this is what he was referring to in Obama's statements. Uh, if a man have a stubborn, rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him, will not hearken unto them. Then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him and bring him out of the, uh, to the elders of the city and unto the gate of his place. And they shall say unto the elders of his city, Our son is stubborn, rebellious, he will not obey our voice, he is a glutton and a drunkard. What did they accuse Jesus Christ of? Being a glutton and a drunkard, eaten with publicans and sinners. You remember them accusing him of that? Yeah. It's like, where do they get it from? Right there. <laughs> right? And all the men of his city shall stone him with stones that he die. So shalt thou put evil away from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Okay, so, so his stubbornness, his rebelliousness, his laziness, um, his drunkenness, his gluttony, this is all punishable by stoning, a public stoning. Now, if you recall, there's several times in the, uh, in the Gospels where Jesus Christ has a run-in with the Pharisees, and the Bible says they took up stones to stone him, but he walks through the center of them. Now, that's as miraculous as you can picture that in your mind. If you can imagine an angry mob that has decided that it is now worth their while to pick up stones and stone you, and then you just happen to walk through the center of them, you know that there was some kind of spiritual intervention uh, that took place to get Jesus Christ out of that situation, right? But look in verse 22 of the same chapter. And if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be put, put to death 
and thou hang him on a tree. So this is their prerogative. If someone is, uh, is, is worthy of death, they've committed a sin worthy of death, and you decide to hang that person on a tree, this is the conduct, this is the, the parameters in which you have to abide by. Well, the problem with that is the accusation that was given, that was, that was taken up uh, from the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to Matthew 26. Now we know that Jesus Christ never broke the law. The only way that Jesus Christ could be guilty of what they accused him of is if what he was saying was false. Because when Jesus Christ stands up and says, I and my Father are one, well, that's a pretty lofty statement. Unless he's telling the truth. Because they were waiting for a Messiah, right? The problem is he didn't look like what they thought he was going to look like. Okay, Matthew 26. Um, what did I say? 26. Dun, 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 dun. Sixty-five. Here we go. Sixty-five. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken uh, blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Okay? So, he's been falsely accused... There's no merit to their accusation, but they have come to the terms that he is guilty of death. So now he's hung on a tree. So there's only two, there's only two conclusions to run from that. And the first conclusion we see in Acts chapter 2. Go to Acts chapter 2. And that is simply this, that either his death or his, his killing was a mistake. It was a mistake. It should have never happened. Look in verse 23. Uh, Starting 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you, by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. You know this. Because we also know that back in that passage in Matthew, that they delivered him up because of envy. That was their motive. They just they didn't like him because he was doing stuff that they couldn't do, and he was taking he was taking uh, uh, authority and power away from the ones that wanted the authority and the power. And so, because of envy, they delivered the Lord Jesus Christ up. And look in verse twenty three. It says, "Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain." You done made a mistake. And you know that the plea that they said, and, they, he, and when Pilate's talking to him, he says, this man's done nothing amiss. And they said, let the blood of him be upon us and upon our children. What a statement. What a statement. And boy, oh boy, don't you know that's exactly what happened. The blood is upon them and has been upon their children and I don't care who you are, the amount of turmoil that them as a nation have had to endure because of their rejection of their Messiah 
I mean, my goodness, the fact that the amount of genocidal uh, attempts on that nation should make a, a person who doesn't believe in God believe in God immediately. The fact that Israel exists today is a miracle of God and is only explained supernaturally. Unbelievable. And so, <coughs> excuse me, so it's either a mistake or look at Matthew 27. Back to Matthew chapter 27. It was, it was either a mistake or it was a vicarious, substitutional death on behalf of Barabbas. So look in verse 16. And they, uh, and they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? For he knew, for envy they had delivered him. And when he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife, she came and says, I've, had, I've suffered you know, many things in dream, right? Um, verse 20, but the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, whether twain will ye that I release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said unto them, what shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They say, let him be crucified, right? And so he is killed in the place of Barabbas. Now, this is, this is, uh, this is really uh, some, some neat stuff, okay? Because this, again, only your Bible, only your Bible can do this. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is miraculous stuff. Barabbas is a thief. Barabbas uh, is a thief. He's, he's said to be a thief uh, over in John, it says that he was a robber. Okay, not only was that was he a thief, Judas was a thief. The people that Jesus Christ was hung on the cross with, the two others that were next to him, they were both thieves. And how in the world was Jesus Christ taken? Go to Luke twenty-two. This is just coincidental. Luke twenty-two. I love this stuff, man. This is cool. Luke 22, look in verse 52. Then Jesus said unto the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders which came to him, Be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves? Jesus was taken as a thief. He replaced a thief. He was betrayed by a thief. He was hung on the cross with thieves. Why is that so significant? He was a replacement for lawbreakers. He was a replacement of somebody who took something that wasn't theirs. Right? What is a lost person? Why does it, here, here's a question for you. Why does somebody go to hell? Okay, rejected Jesus Christ? Yes. Right? So they don't so so here's the, they don't go to they don't go to hell because of what they do. 
they go to hell because they're taking something that's not theirs. This is my life. Well, no, it's not. You didn't, you didn't, you weren't, you didn't birth yourself. You don't, you don't control, you don't control the, the, the breath in your lungs and your heart beating and all the, the involuntary uh, modes of your body. So what did you do? God gave you life, right? And then said, here's salvation, Jesus Christ, or you can choose to do it yourself. And you say, I'll do it myself. And so you take what God has given you, which is life, and you say, I don't need you. I'll just take it for my own. I'll just do it myself. Right? Bunch of thieves. Took something that wasn't theirs. Right? He dies for lawbreakers. See, this is, this, is the, uh, this, is the, this is the important thing to get. That the death of Jesus Christ was a payment. It was a vicarious death on behalf of Barabbas. But go to, this is a verse that everyone here should have memorized, but Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 14. In whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. This was, this was, a, uh, this was a payment. This was a redemption, okay? To be, to be bought back. To be redeemed is to be bought back, paid for, okay? And what was His payment? His payment was paying back for what uh, the lawbreakers had. Okay, go to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. See, I'm, I'm honing in a little bit deeper than what I did on Sunday morning. Hebrews chapter 9, look in verse number 15. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption, there to be bought back, right, of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of an uh, eternal inheritance. So those of the first testament, okay, could be redeemed. The death of the, uh, or excuse me, the death for the redemption of the transgression that were under the first testament, they which are called uh, might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. These are folks that have, that have sins that are not remitted, or that are not redeemed, they're not paid for. Now go to Romans chapter number 3. Romans 3, look at verse 25. Whom God has set forth, here's a great Bible word, to be the propitiation. The propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. That word propitiation is like the appeasement of wrath. Okay? That's that, that word propitiation. The appeasement of wrath. So wrath was upon you. You were, you, were, you, were, uh, you were covered in sin, the unrighteousness of yourself. And, and Jesus Christ was the propitiation through faith in His blood. This was a redemptive process. This was a vicarious 
death that the Lord Jesus Christ went through for you and I. So here's, here's the final lesson in the picture of the whole thing. If you stand before God one day sinless, you will have had to accept that substitute on your behalf before you die. There it is. Right? That is, that's the implication of the verse. Uh, so, um, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for his written curse is everyone that hangeth on a tree. There's three sections of those. I think we've covered all three uh, points of that verse that, make, that we understand the entirety of it. Um, and it boils it down to one thing, in that you had, you had the curse of the law, right? Those are the first testament. Underneath all the curse, all those sins that were not remitted or that were not uh, redeemed or paid for through the Old Testament, all those, all those Old Testament saints, they just go to Abraham's bosom. They're not in the presence. They're, they're not in, in heaven with the Lord because their sins are still on them. And so uh, Jesus Christ comes and he pays the debt. And he takes the curse of the law. And he is then made a curse. All the all that bad stuff the Lord promised the nation of Israel for not doing what God told him to do. The prices and the wages of the sin of mankind, the Lord makes Jesus Christ that. And then he says, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And then so he brings it back to the crucifixion. And when he brings it back to the crucifixion, we see <clears throat> with him being made what he was. Um, that through the crucifixion it was a substitutional death and that substitutional death is to show that in order for you to be sinless before God you need to take your substitute and what does it say if any man tries to go in any other way what does the Bible call him a thief and a robber you see that he can't make that stuff up man <laughs> he can't make it up it's all the way through it okay so verse number 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, <clears throat> take the next few moments here and try to sift through some of the confusion that can come through um, these next few verses. When you're dealing with this, these sections here, especially when we're dealing with the types uh, with Abraham, um, some... Uh, sometimes we, there's a lot of confusion about promises and the seed and what's physical, what's spiritual. We, we alluded to some of that uh, in Sunday school over the last couple weeks. But it says here that the blessing of Abraham. Now, I want to say, first of all, that the blessing of Abraham is the first clause of this verse. And the blessing of Abraham, okay, uh, the blessing of Abraham is made up of two previously mentioned things. It's found in verse number 6. That is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, uh, or the imputed righteousness that was given to Abraham. That's found in verse 6. Even as Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then the justification that is mentioned in verse 8. Right? The scripture foreseen that God would justify the heathen through faith, Okay, so the blessing of Abraham is that, is that very thing. It's, the, it's imputed righteousness and it is justification. It was mentioned in verse 6. It was mentioned in verse 8. Now, there's another clause in this verse. 
And it's the second part of this verse, and it's not attributed to Abraham directly. Might come to the Gentiles. The blessing of Abraham may come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, uh, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So there's the blessing of Abraham. You see that? And then you see that there's the promise of the Spirit. You see the two things? They're two different things in the same verse. The second clause in the verse, and it's the second promise, that's not connected to Abraham. It's not connected to Abraham. You have to understand that. Um, <laughs> we'll go through what this promise is. Um, take your Bibles go to Luke 24. What is this promise of the Spirit? We'll go through the verses and see what it is, and then we'll see why you cannot attribute this to Abraham. Luke 24, look in verse number 49. It says, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Okay? This is, um, this is uh, speaking about the ascension uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says here, he's going to send the promise of my Father. You see that? Go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem. So now we see where we're, we're right back there in Luke where we just read, right? But wait for the promise of the Father, which saith, ye have heard of me. So they're saying, okay, what's the promise of the Father? We see that there's a promise of the Father. Go to John chapter 14. What is the promise? <clears throat> when you identify what the promise is, then you can properly place it. John chapter 14, verse number 16. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that, ye may abide with, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for, ye dwe for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Okay? Um, there's a couple things in this verse that are very, very important to understand. Again, we're in the book of John. John tends to have more Pauline doctrine within the Gospel of John because when John wrote this in A.D. 33, it looks like that John had a lot of Paul's writings uh, accessible to him. And so you find a lot of Pauline scripture that's kind of just peppered through the book of John. And, and in this passage here, when he says, I pray the Father that he will give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. That is a new concept. That is, a, that is a new concept that's different from the Old Testament because we know in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit would come on to a man and then the Holy Spirit would leave a man. Remember that? In the issue of Saul. Saul, excuse me, has the Lord on him and then the Lord comes off of him and a bad spirit comes on him 
And David is told to come in with a harp and play for Saul to bring a good spirit back in on Saul. So the Holy Spirit goes on him and the Holy Spirit comes off of him. David, take not the Holy Spirit from me. Why? Because the Holy Spirit would come on him and then the Holy Spirit would leave off of him. He's telling you here that the Holy Spirit is going to abide with you forever. That's a new concept. That's foreshadowing what's going to happen. And then, if that wasn't enough, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you. Right? He dwells with you now, but look at what he's going to be. And shall, future tense, be in you. He's promising an indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, that's a, that is a, that's a church-age doctrine, the indwelling Holy Spirit. You're, uh, you're sealed unto the day of redemption, right? The Holy Spirit resides inside of your body, okay? So that, that right there shows you that the promise of the Father or the promise of the Spirit is, is given, um, is given here at, back in, in John... And we'll see it again here in, in John chapter 16. It alludes to it again. Starting in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. That's a promise. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more, and of judgment because the Prince of the world is judged. How be it? Verse uh, 13, when the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. And we know that that also is alludes to the indwelling Holy Spirit and his job and what, what his duties are. And that is um, the natural man receives not the things of God, right? Neither can he know them. They're foolishness unto him. For they're spiritually discerned. But you and I, we have discernment through the Holy Spirit. He leads and guides you into all truth. So you see that there's some principles here that are promised. But what's the, what's the problem with that? The problem is, is that those, that promise wasn't given to Abraham. So the minute you try to say, the minute you try to say that... Um, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith, the minute you try to say that that promise was given to Abraham, Abraham was never given the Spirit of God. Abraham was never promised a Spirit. This only applies to the spiritual seed of Abraham. Now this is where some of the confusion comes in. And we'll, and we'll get to that here in just a second. Okay? But some of the confusion comes from this spiritual seed of Abraham. How do we know it's spiritual? Because Abraham was never given that promise. That was a promise that was, that was articulated by the Lord Jesus Christ to His disciples. Okay? And, and who is the recipient of that, of that promise? That happens and fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. Okay, 
And then, of course, we understand how that trickles through all the way through the book of Acts. And now in Pauline doctrine, we get saved. The Holy Spirit comes inside of us. He cuts our soul away from our body. He dwells in us. He, he uh, quickens our conscience. He leads and guides us in all truth. We're not to grieve Him. We're not to quench Him. He's to shine light on the Bible, give us understanding of that, lead and guide us through our conscience, right? That's the working of the Holy Spirit. We're the recipients of that. We're the spiritual seed of Abraham, okay? This promise is connected to the Scripture foreseeing in verse 8. The Scripture was foreseeing. What was he foreseeing? Well, what does he say back in verse 8? He says uh, that he was foreseeing that God would justify the heathen, Gentiles. Okay? Verse, back in verse 14... What's he going to do? It might come on to the Gentiles. The blessing of Abraham would come on to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ that we might uh, receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, if you try to make that promise, a promise that was given to Abraham, what did you just, what, what did you do? That means that someone's trying to take the physical promises that were given to Abraham and spiritualize them to where they go from Abraham, and now they reside on the church. And they don't. Okay? They don't. The we in the verse, okay, the we, it says um, that we might receive the promise. The we in the verse includes Paul and all the people in Galatia. He's referring to himself and we. That's who he's promising And then it says, the, uh, it says um, come on the Gentiles. That's connected to verse 13. Um, because the Spirit could not come to Jew or Gentile until after the crucifixion and after Jesus Christ was glorified. Why did, so he says that. He says that... Um, it says... Uh, the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. Well, the significance of that is it could not have taken place because Jew wasn't getting it and the Gentile wasn't getting the promise of the Spirit, right, until the crucifixion. Now, this is going to open up another thing that, uh, that we'll get to here in just a second, but go to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verse 39. Start in verse 38. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given... Why? Because that Jesus was not yet glorified. You see that? They were going to believe on Him, but the, but the promise of the Spirit had not come because Jesus, there was something holding it back, and that is Jesus Christ had not yet been glorified. So there's a principle here that we have to understand that uh, there was no glory ahead of the sufferings of Christ. There was no glory 
until after the suffering. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to bring all this to a, to a point here in a second, I promise. First Peter chapter 1, I mean this is real good. First Peter chapter 1, starting verse 10. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify uh, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. You see, the sufferings come before the glory. Okay, what's the significance of it? Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, that is the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament saints that wrote of it and prophesied of it, right? It says, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us. They did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. You see that? Those guys in the Old Testament were prophesying of all these things, and they had no idea what in the world they were talking about. Could you imagine being Isaiah and writing Isaiah 53? And going, where in the world's that guy? Right? Could you imagine? Could you imagine? I mean, Moses is like, man, put a serpent on a pole, lift it up. What's the significance of that? You know? Or was like, ah, limited vision, sorry. <laughs> David's writing Psalm 23, Psalm 22. And he's like, you know, pluck the beard off my face and bulls of Bashan encompass me about. They pierce my hands and my feet. That never happened to David. What in the world is he talking about? He's saying, who, the Lord tell him to write this stuff down. He's like, I'll write it down, but who's that guy? <laughs> right? So they prophesied of it, but the Holy Spirit was not able to come until after the sufferings and after Jesus Christ was glorified. Okay? And the reason that that is significant, that you understand what is, the, what is the promise of the Spirit through faith, and that it's not given to Abraham. Abraham, when he died, went to the ground. He went into Abraham's bosom. He went to the, to the center of the earth. Why? His sins weren't taken care of. The, 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 death, the New Testament is not in effect until the death of the testator. Okay? So Jesus Christ, He goes, he goes, he goes uh, to the cross. He dies. That's not, it's not done yet. He's then seen and says, Don't touch me for I have not yet ascended. Right? He goes up, presents Himself, presents the blood, comes back down in a nanosecond. And now he's saying, you know, go ahead, touch me, feel me, you know. Thomas, what's your problem? Go ahead and thrust in my side to put your fingers in the holes. They say you got to do it, right? He had no problem with them touching him at that point. Okay, now he's glorified. 
And now, they, in Acts chapter 2, they're sitting there and the Holy Spirit comes down just like the Lord promised. And now you got this Holy Spirit that's starting to reveal things to people. And that's why Acts is a, is a transitional book in your Bible. And you can't pull all your main doctrines out of the book of Acts because it's transitioning into something else that God's doing, a new dispensation. And that was never given to Abraham. Now, this is, this is given to the spiritual seed of Abraham. We'll get into that in just a second. Look in verse number 14, back in our text, Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. Uh, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Uh, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Okay, this, this uh, thing here, this is just Paul saying, I speak after the manner of man. This is basically Paul just giving a common sense, ordinary, everyday illustration. That's what he's saying here. You see this term used in other spots. Um, in Romans chapter 6, he talks about, uh, go actually turn there, go to Romans chapter 6. You can see Paul using it again. And he's just going to give a really simple illustration to demonstrate a spiritual uh, lesson. Okay? We do this in preaching all the time. We speak after the manner of men. So what you do is you take, you take uh, a worldly subject or some kind of subject that man and you and I are dealing with on a daily basis, and then you spiritualize it to teach a spiritual lesson. Okay? So Romans chapter 6, look in verse number 19. I speak after the manner of men. Because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity, unto iniquity, even now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. He says, I'm speaking after the manner of men. You know how, like, when before you got saved, you, I mean, you did everything that the world told you to do. You, you served it with all your might. You went out there and you tried to look your best and act your best and do everything the world told you to do. And you yielded yourself, you yielded your members to whatever the world wanted you to do. He says, now that you're saved, do the same exact thing, but unto God. He said, I'm speaking after the manner of men. I'm just giving you an illustration. Okay? And so, back here in our text, verse 15, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, if it be, uh, if it, uh, but if, excuse me, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. So, uh, anybody in here ever written up a, a, like a, a legally binding agreement? You know, there's been legally binding agreements that have been written on the back of napkins, <laughs> right? Um, so, um, I know that I've entered in a land contract before. You know, there's all kinds of different, you know, contracts that you can sign mutually between people. Especially, I, I just think about real estate because that's what I have the most exposure to. You know, when, you know, if you have a, if you share a driveway, there's an easement and there's all kinds of, you know, different contracts and agreements that you can come up with, you know, between homeowners. Maybe you, there's a big pond and your property's all connected to this one pond. And so you want to make this a common piece of property, right? So that nobody can claim ownership of it or whatever. And you want everybody to live in perfect harmony. So you write up certain uh, contract that binds everybody by that. And so what he's saying here is if it works in the realm of you and I, if we can write up a land contract, right, and if that thing is confirmed, if it's, if it's, if it's done in the sight of the law, right, and, and, it's, and it's been confirmed by those in power, 
It says that no man can disannulleth or addeth thereto. You can't change it. Unless there's other legal ramifications that you have to go to and both parties have to be in agreement, so on and so forth. But what he's saying is, is once that thing is confirmed, it's set in stone. There's nothing you're going to do about it. Okay? So he's just giving an illustration. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Now this can be confusing. Does anybody read that verse and say, man, that seems a little bit tricky. Right? And so he says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. All right? Now we have to understand the promises that are given to Abraham. Now, this is going to take us back to verse 8 of Galatians chapter 3, when it says the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, And thee shall all nations be blessed. Okay? It says, in thee shall all nations be blessed, so then they which are of faith, which be of faith, are blessed with faithful Abraham. So this is where the post-millennialists, okay, this is post-millennialists, so the millennium comes in after we bring in this wonderful kingdom. The post-millennialists take this and they say, the physical, all the promises that were given to Abraham, Right? They go from Abraham, they're confirmed in Isaac, they're confirmed in Jacob, and those things are passed down. And now, those promises, by faith, are given to the church. And now those promises reside on the church. Now that's a heresy. That's not true. And, and, here's, and here's how you know that. What does he say here? That, all, see, that uh, shall all nations... Be blessed. Go back to Genesis chapter number uh, 12, I believe. Yeah, I think it's 12. Genesis 12. Genesis 12, look in verse 1. Now the Lord said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Here we go. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. This is a physical promise to Abraham. Okay, it's a physical promise to Abraham. It is a it's a it's a land contract that God that God gave uh, to uh, to Abraham. Now go to Genesis chapter eighteen. Galatians chapter three is not referencing Genesis chapter twelve. Now you're going to say you're going to strain at gnat and swallow a camel here, but I, I'm going to explain myself. Go to Genesis chapter eighteen, verse eighteen. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, look at this, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. 
What's the difference between those two accounts? In Genesis chapter 12, he said families. And in Genesis chapter 18, he said nations. And guess what? Families and nations aren't the same thing. <laughs> They're different. Okay? They're different. And so that means, if that, and, and if you understand that, what is the, then what's the difference between what is promised here in Genesis chapter 18 versus what's promised in Genesis chapter 12? Well, go to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. This is what we call a salient passage in the Bible. Anybody ever heard me say that word before? The word salient? This is a, a very important passage in the Bible. This sheds a lot of light on other sections of the Bible, okay? So this is a salient passage. There's many salient passages in the, in the Bible, and this is one of them, okay? So Genesis chapter 22, look in verse number 15. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time. This is now, what's he doing here in Genesis 22? This is the situation with him offering Isaac up as a sacrifice uh, as the Lord requested. Okay? And verse 16, And said, By myself have I, have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Oh, there she is. <laughs> In verse 18, And thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. What did he say? And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So the seed he's talking about here is Isaac. Am I right? The, the context of this is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Isaac as a type of Christ. Okay? Um, how do you know that? Verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold... Uh, uh, behold him, a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering instead of his son. What did we just talk about in the verse before that? It was a vicarious, substitutional death. Okay? When the Lord, or when, when, uh, when Isaac questions his dad, right? Um, let's see here. Verse 7, And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, Father, um, he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham, Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb. Why did, why did Abraham believe that? You know what Abraham believed? Because of the promise that was given to him, how in the world... Was he going to stop the seed right then and there? You know what Abraham thought? And, I, and he said, God will provide himself a lamb. Whether he provides himself a lamb in some way, shape, or form, or the minute I kill my son, God will resurrect him right then and there. That's how much Abraham believed the Lord. You see that? This is a spiritual seed 
that is, that is through Isaac. And that seed is the seed of Jesus Christ. Okay? This seed, um, this seed is, 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 is gone throughout time, even, you know, before, before Abraham, you know, when, uh, and <coughs> before the nation of Israel. If you think about, uh, if you think about um, Satan and his desire to destroy um, the seed that Jesus Christ was going to come out of. So you have the physical seed of Abraham. That's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all Jacob's sons, right? And then you have everybody, anybody read that passage over there talks about, it says, um, uh, and, the, and, and he shall bruise thy head and you shall bruise his heel. Right? Everybody says, oh, on the cross, Jesus Christ stepped on the head and crushed the head of Satan and killed Satan. Right? But then in Thessalonians, he says, uh, he, will bru he, will, he will bruise his head shortly. So it hadn't happened yet. That was after the cross. So it hadn't happened yet. That's future. That's second advent stuff. Okay? It wasn't done on the cross. But the, the thing here is he says, I put enmity between thy seed and her seed. The seed that started in the garden with, uh, with um, uh, Eve. I have put enmity between thy seed and her seed. There's a seed that runs through that thing, and it's the seed that's connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, you get guys like J. Vernon McGee, and they say, Jesus Christ came out of the godly line of Seth. Where the heck you got that? It's the most ungodly line there is. How in the world are you going to say it was a godly line that Jesus Christ came out of? It's full of harlots and murderers and stinking uh, pedophiles and all kinds of stinking mess, right? Uh, you know, Judah, Judas, uh, I shouldn't say pedophiles, but it's, uh, you know, Judah's sleeping with his uh, daughter-in-law and, and, and all kinds of stuff, and Rahab the harlot, and you got, you got Ruth in there, Moabitess, you got all kinds, godly line of Seth. Well, you think, you think uh, um, the devil's working overtime through Pharaoh, right? Trying to destroy the, the children of Israel. Why? He knows that the only one who can defeat him is coming through the nation of Israel somehow. And there is a war between the devil and the seed that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come out of. And so he's messing with that seed and constantly trying to defile that seed and constantly trying to defile that seed, defile that seed. He's going after kings. He's going after the nation of Israel. Balak wants to curse them so that the Lord takes his hand off of them. Why is the devil so against trying to, trying to get God to turn against his seed? Because if he could stop the seed, he could stop Jesus Christ from coming. So you have to understand that there's the physical seed of Abraham. And those are physical promises that are given to the nation of Israel. And then there's a spiritual seed that also runs through Abraham, and that is in Christ. That's Christ's seed. So there's two things at work here. So when we go back to Galatians, back to Galatians chapter 16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. And he saith not, and to seeds... As of many. Well, that's exactly what I'm telling you. It's one seed. But there's, there's, the, there's the type that goes through Isaac, and then there's the physical seed that goes through, uh, that, that's the physical seed of Abraham. Okay? 
uh, where the promise made, and he saith not as to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Okay, so it's a, it's a, a reference that uh, Genesis chapter 18, verse 18, it comes in after the promise of the chosen seed, which is in Isaac, um, and that is the, uh, the spiritual seed that we find in Genesis chapter 18, 18. So the significance of that is, is you cannot put the physical blessings of Abraham onto the church. You can't do it. You have, he, he told you here that it's in Christ. It says, which is Christ? Um, in, the, uh, in verse 14, he says it's through Jesus Christ. Okay? This, it's, it's just like this. It's just the same kind of thought uh, when he talks and he uses, um, he uses Abraham uh, with this uh, thing about election and predestination. Okay, he uses the same kind of illustration, and the, and the same answer justifies in both accounts, and that is that you're pre, you are not predestinated until you're in Christ. Once you're in Christ, you then become predestinated. Well, how in the world am I one of the elect? You want to know how you become elect? You elect him, and now you're elect. You see that? And then the thing about foreknowledge. Well, what's the problem with foreknowledge? Foreknowledge, God is Alpha and Omega. Just because He has foreknowledge of something doesn't mean He predestinated it to happen. He resides outside of time. So He can see the end from the beginning. And so the, only, the, the, the thing that He predestinated was His Son, Jesus Christ. And so the minute you got into Jesus Christ, you became predestinated, just like Jesus Christ was predestinated before the foundation of the world. It's the same concept. The spiritual blessings of Abraham, this, this spiritual blessing that we talked about in verse 14, comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a spiritual seed. And that, spirit, that, that blessing didn't get put on Abraham, it get put on you. And what we'll talk about next time, because I'm still there's a lot of stuff in this in these next couple of verses that I want to make sure that I have it laid out in a way that is you know understandable. In verse 17, he says, "And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect." Now, in just and just surface level stuff without getting into the 430 years because we'll have to go into that and boy, it'll get fun. <clears throat> but without getting into all that, he's given you an illustration, right? We remember that back in verse number 15, brethren, I speak after the manner of men, okay? That I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul. So the promises that were given, right? To Abraham, uh, whether that those are the, uh, the the spiritual promises we're talking we're talking about spiritual promises in this in this passage, right? That's the context in which we're at. So the only reason that you would read physical promises in, into this is if you're trying to you're trying to replace the nation of Israel, and we'll and we'll get uh, we won't go back through all the replacement theology stuff that we've already went through, but I'll I'll touch on it as we go through it, but um. 
that that stuff was confirmed, just like the illustration in verse 15, that if it's a, if it's a covenant, if it's a man's covenant, if it's confirmed, no other man can disallow it. So if this covenant was given before the law, then anything that the law would bring in didn't disannul what happened with Abraham. You see that? And so what they try to do here is they try to say that this has somehow been disannulled uh, or this has somehow changed and now the physical promises of Abraham are put on somebody else and everybody wants to claim it, whether it's the Muslims or the British Israelites or, you know, post-millennialists saying that, oh, now it's the church and we're bringing in the kingdom and, you know, all that garbage. So... It's a treacherous little passage right here, and I know maybe we're, I'm not doing a great job of you know, making it understandable, but um, this is a place where a lot of heresies are taught. Galatians chapter 3 is, is jam-packed full of, of heresies. And uh, I actually went over, I don't, anybody remember me going over the, the five heresies that are taught out of Galatians chapter 3? Anybody have that in their notes? It was before we started recording them too, but... Um, Antinomialism, uh, fatherhood, fatherhood of God, brotherhood of man, baptism and regeneration. Um, there's no difference as far as, uh, like, uh, there's no differences in man, so, like, no differences in Jews. They teach no physical differences uh, here. Uh, Postmillennialism, uh, like I said, we're bringing in the kingdom. Those are five major heresies that are just taught just in Galatians chapter 3. So the stuff that we're treading through as it's, as, as the Lord is masterfully weaving the illustration from the Old Testament to show us what's going on in the New Testament, to show us, you know, how the Spirit uh, and the promise of the Spirit comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when you boil this thing down to brass tacks, He's using Abraham as an illustration for imputed righteousness and for justification. Okay? That's what He's using. And he's using it that it came by faith and that it did not come by the law. That's the illustration that Paul is trying to show. We got that from the beginning of Galatians when he said, he says, if you receive the Spirit by faith, are you now made perfect by the works of the law? The implied answer is, of course not. And so he now goes into a discourse about Abraham and how he, was, he, he believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. The minute you try to warp this into changing the physical promises to spiritual all the way through, and you've shown your motive, this is a trap. What you'll find out as you study your Bible more and more and more, you'll find out that there's traps that God sets in the Bible. And they're set in there to challenge your motive for how you approach the Bible. And this is a trap. This is a treacherous trap. And so if you come to this and you say, you know, I'm, I, I, I want to, and you have some ulterior motive, you have every bit in here to try to manipulate the scripture to make it teach what you want it to teach. But if you come to this thing realizing and having some sense and rightly dividing this thing and realizing that the Old Testament, you know, and, and you understand where uh, uh, Abraham was with the Lord and what was promised to him, and you understand that there's a spiritual seed that goes through Isaac as a type of Jesus Christ, and that seed, again, was attacked before Abraham even showed up, and that thing's been attacked all the way through history, 
uh, then you then you're gonna give, you're gonna get the illustration that's gonna make perfect sense. It's the same place when you when you read. Uh, there's certain places we'll, and we'll get into there eventually. But there's there's places in your Bible where the first the first advent and the second advent are in the same verse, and they're separated by a comma. And if you try to read that thing straight across, you'll mess yourself up. It's literally 2,000 years separated in a comma in the same verse. What is that? <laughs> That's the Lord saying, you better respect this thing when you come to it. Because if you think you're smarter than me, <laughs> you're going to wreck yourself in this thing. So you've got to learn how to navigate through this thing, and it makes a lot of sense when you just say, you know what, Lord? If I don't understand it, I just got to put it in the right spot. And when you put it in the right spot, then the light bulb comes on, it clicks in place, and there is no problems, there's no contradictions, and it's just like, I get it now. All right? So uh, we'll stop there for tonight. I, did, I, did, I went about an hour and a half. Um, we'll stop there for tonight. Pastor is still technically on vacation, so we'll, we'll give him, we'll give him his, his night. And uh, sorry for having to cancel last minute last week, guys, that had a meeting at work and... It didn't even get out until 6.30, and there was no way I was going to drive 40 minutes to my house and get back here in time for class. So um, sorry about that last week. But uh, let's go ahead and pray real quick, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you, uh, Lord. We have a book that we can come to, and there's no shortage, Lord, of time that could be spent. Lord, uh, the, the only thing that limits us is, Lord, my capacity even to understand everything that is behind these verses, Lord. And uh, Father, I pray you'd just uh, put your hand on the meager attempt to try to teach through some of these things and these concepts that are in the Bible. I pray that you give us understanding. And Lord, I pray you bless all that came out tonight, Lord. And I pray that you'd help them to maybe even go home and, and search some of these things out if they don't have a firm grasp on it, Lord, and that they may get a better understanding. And we ask it now in Jesus' name, amen. Does anybody have any questions?